I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, in a pew Bible, it's page number 939. You can find it there. And today we begin our, our verse-by-verse exposition of this wonderful book. Last time, um, I surveyed the book, uh, meaning just kind of went over it uh, real high level, but focusing mostly upon uh, Paul's purpose in writing. And though this book is deeply theological, he wasn't writing a mere theological treatise for us just to to think about. I I contended last time that this is a a missionary appeal letter. So you remember remember our map here is you remember that Paul was in Corinth probably when he wrote it, um, and he was collecting up some funds for missionary relief for those who were in Jerusalem. He was planning to go to Jerusalem by Pentecost so that he could then deliver this gift. And then he was making his way to Rome. And um, this letter was being sent from Corinth to Rome in preparation for when he went. And he was hoping when he gets to Rome is to head on to Spain. And here's probably the key verse of what I'm appealing to in terms of the purpose of this letter. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And Paul was just helping, hoping for the Romans to help him get to Spain. And uh, that's kind of his heart. His heart and passion was to preach the gospel and any sort of help that they might give. I think he was open and willing to, to have that, whether that was prayer or finances, right? The big things that we think about mostly, right? We think about missionaries. Praying comes to mind. We, we put posters um, on refrigerators, little magnets to remember to pray um, for them. Or we get letters from them encouraging to pray, but also giving. Because it costs money to go to a far distant land. Travel takes money. Living there takes money. Serving there takes money. Traveling back, sending letters, supports, missionary. It's, it's just all takes money to communicate with supporters and coming back. And Paul, I think, was looking for any sort of help possible. In fact, even look there what he says in, first, in Romans 15, verse 14. He says, to be helped on my journey there by you. Just to be helped in any way. As he's, he's going on, like so if someone owned a shipping company and had a ship and wanted to bring them on, I think Paul would have, would have gladly considered that, taking such help. So the ticket price would have been less. If someone wanted to join him, I'm sure he would have looked at him and if he was going to be a help, help him to join him along the way. Maybe if someone especially knew the language, it would have been helpful. If someone had contacts in Spain of places to go or people to see, I'm, I'm sure he would have done some of that, taken down information, any physical resources clothes or tent supplies and to the extent that he could he could um, uh, he could put that together and he could carry that and use that I'm sure that he would have and I mentioned two weeks ago that last week would be a great application of that as Bob Clinton and and Joel and Tara came Bob from the United States and Joel and Tara from India as they came they were seeking help they are seeking help from us with their ministry we've helped them greatly in the past and they're looking for, for more help. And so, just even for you, you can, you can help in ways that was financially support children in the children's home. Joel mentioned a tea garden education fund. You can help with that. Maybe in the form of gifts, books, or toys, or, or crafts. Maybe just being added to their mailing list. I mean, if you want to be encouraged by what's taking place, uh, maybe just jump on their mailing list. And Bob sends an email out. Almost as consistently as I send the weekly word out. Just kind of comes with different stories. It's just all over the map of all, all doing stuff. You might, you might do that. 
And I was encouraged this week as we basically became Paul and Tara's tour guides around as we're bringing them around to different places and introducing them to new things that they'd never seen before. Like we went downtown Chicago on Thursday and uh, saw a giraffe. They'd never seen a, a giraffe before. They were pretty excited about that. They'd never seen a building before that's a hundred stories tall. They um, had never had a Big Mac, and so we gave them a, a Big Mac, and uh, we were we went we we're kind of in a hurry trying to get back, and so we we're driving through the drive-through, hit the drive-through, and I talk about my order, and and Joel's from the back seat. Oh, Pastor Steve, bye, Steve, die. You're not getting out of the car. <laughs> I said, No. Have you ever seen this before? And no. So they experienced a drive-through for the first time, and. Uh, so just we had an opportunity just to encourage them and other people. There's another church in Davis that they spent a lot of time with, and they just they were encouraged, and they came back. They went back with a bunch of gifts. We gave them some gifts. I know some of you gave them some gifts, uh, even beyond financial, just some things that might might help them. We stuffed their uh, um, we stuffed their luggage with some Legos and with some uh, with some books. That's just going to help them. And I know Nancy Weeby gave some some supplies some crafts and things like that and just we just wanted to help them on their way that's the spirit of what paul was was writing here and one commentator just said this says that paul writes this letter not primarily as a theologian but as a missionary with ambitious plans to evangelize spain with the good news that it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes and his exposition of the gospel is not ivory tower theology but it's intended to deepen the level of his reader's existing commitment to the implications of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And if he's to gain support of a divided Roman audience for his missionary venture to the western barbarian region of the Roman Empire, he must bring them together around a common gospel. And that's what he's seeking to do. Bring them together so he might be helped on, on his way. See, Paul had a passion. He had a passion to preach the gospel. It's the, the theme that I have pulled out here of the the book of Romans, eager to preach the gospel. This is what Paul was. This was the way to Spain. He was just eager to preach the gospel. And my, my, uh, my hope is for us is that going through Romans, we would likewise get a hope, um, get a desire to preach the gospel as well. In fact, I just want to pray that just as we begin opening up with verse 1 that I'm going to read just here in a few moments, just that that God would stir our hearts to be those who don't just look at the gospel and endure, enjoy it for ourselves, but would, would speak it forth and would share it with others. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray, Lord, for this book of Romans, <clears throat> that it might not be a mere theological, abstract sort of look at our salvation. God, but might really realize what is the, the core and the essence of our faith, that how is it that we're saved? How is it that you saved Old Testament saints? How is it that the, the blood of Jesus <clears throat> cleanses us from sin? How deep is our need for sin? And how glorious it is that through one man, God, just as death entered the world, through one man, righteousness has entered the world as well. So God, I pray that we would glory in that, glory in our security that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, that you work together all things for good to those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And Lord, that we would see those things, that you would help us in our sanctification to walk with you as we struggle with our bodies, our sinful bodies that, God, sometimes seem out of control. 
would pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. And I pray that you give us a passion as Romans 10 speaks about the, the need for preachers to go forth, the need for people to go out and speak the gospel to others. So, Lord, I would pray as we begin this morning, chapter 1, verse 1, that you would conform our hearts God, to an excitement about the gospel that would bubble over that we can't help but speak and tell others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, again, 979, 939 in your pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1 begins this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul introduces himself in these verses and he introduces his message. That is my title of my message this morning is Paul and his message. By way of outline, I simply want to pick up on the subjects uh, that just Paul brings out because he brings various subjects out. And uh, maybe surprising to you is that Paul begins by talking about himself. Verse 1, Paul. Everything in Paul is description about his name. He speaks about his name first and then goes on to describe himself. Um, In fact, we could easily preach a whole sermon on that first word, Paul. In fact, I was talking with a a preacher friend of mine this week. Told him I was planning to preach through Romans. Told him I'm starting in chapter 1, verse 1. And his uh, response was, oh, are you going to do the I, Paul sermon? And I said, no, I want to move through Romans a little faster than that. I want to try to take a paragraph at a time. I'm sure we'll slow down uh, from time to time. Um, But there is opportunity to preach Paul, to preach a changed life. There's opportunity to tell how Paul was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent against Christ and the church, but God arrested him on that road to Damascus when the the light shone from the sky and, and he was blinded and he heard the audible voice of Jesus. He said, Lord, Lord. Um, why, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. And he spoke with Christ. And, and, and then even had this commission to go out. But he was formerly a blasphemer looking to, to take Christians and bind them up and persecute them and beat them for following the ways of Christ. And yet by God's grace, he says in 1 Timothy 1.16, he found mercy. He was forgiven of his sins. And Paul knew the depth of sin from which God had saved him. And he said as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ displayed his perfect patience to me as an example to those who would believe in Him for eternal life. He says, Christ died for sinners among whom I'm the foremost, and I'm the foremost, so I'm the example for all. And Paul said that, that his was a story such that, 
that no one can be spared, that they're outside of the saving hand of God. Because he said he was, he was so far gone. And his argument in 1 Timothy 1 is that if, if God saved me, Paul says, if God saved Paul, God can save anyone. I mean, I, I liken Paul to like Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden or Muslim terrorist leaders of Al-Qaeda or ISIS who are actively against our nation, who are actively against Christianity. And yet God saved Paul. And I don't care, maybe if you're here today, I don't care how deep your sin is. God can save you. And I don't care how deep the sin of your family members are. God can save them. Or your neighbors. Or your co-workers. And that's what Paul, preaching Paul is. Paul preaches hope. Hope in the gospel. That, that if there's hope for Paul, there is hope for you. There's hope for any of your friends or neighbors or relatives or family or acquaintances. But I leave that full story for when I preach through First Timothy chapter 1. Because that will be the perfect time to preach that. But for the sake of time, we'll just work through chapter 1. Look at verse 1. We, we see Paul give his name in three descriptions. He says, Paul, 1, a servant of Christ Jesus. 2, called to be an apostle. 3, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the fact that Paul identifies himself as Paul speaks about his transformed life. Because Paul wasn't born Paul. Paul was born Saul. After the first king of Israel... Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and Paul, born Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin also, so they named him after this great hero king, which many saw, but when Saul came to Christ, he changed his name to Paul, as many even from foreign lands do. They, they take whatever, their, their foreign name, and they, they take on an English name. I've witnessed that in India, I've witnessed that in Nepal, but... By taking on this new name as Paul did, he accepted new identity. He put away the old ways. And he put on the new ways. And we see his identity, how he identifies himself, first of all, as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, when we're talking about this word servant, uh, books have been written about this word. And discussions have been had about how to translate this word. The New American Standard translates it bondservant which is good if you know what a bondservant is. I think I'm, I'm on here, maybe just, I don't know if my battery's gone, but servant, bondservant, and perhaps arguably the best is slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And I say that because everywhere else in Rome, in Romans, this word doulos comes up, it's a slave. It's translated as slave. But here it's translated servant. But if you look in the New American Standard, there's a note. If you have it there, there's a little one after servant. It says, or slave. And you can read about how they rendered the, the word doulos some. Because you, you need to be sensitive. Because when that word slave comes in our society, what do you think of? I think you think of the horrendous time in our history when Europeans or Americans would travel to Western Europe and against their will herd up men like cattle, putting them in stocks, stuffing them like sardines at the bottom of a boat, forcing them to America where they would labor in hard labor on southern plantations, subjecting them to unbearable miseries, denying them education, denying them opportunities. 
We have every right to shudder when we hear the word slave. But when we read our Bibles, we need to ask, what, what, what did Paul mean when he said slave? Like, did, he didn't have this imagery in mind. Now certainly there were those slaves in the ancient world who were treated like this. But Paul had a different imagery in mind. And kids, you're going to like this. Right? This is the imagery that Paul had in mind. Oh, okay, but maybe not, maybe not quite the Legos, all right? But the picture there of the slave against the door and the master. This depicts Exodus 21. Moses giving Israel instructions about Hebrew slaves. He writes, Exodus 21, verse 2, 5, and 6. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out for nothing. So in other words, you could not bond, you could not enslave a fellow Hebrew for more than seven years. A little bit like the year of Jubilee or the seven-year Sabbath rest of the land. You, you go free. If you're in financial bondage and difficulty, you owe some money, you can voluntarily give yourself for slavery for six years. And in the seventh year, you go free. And then... If you find that that's an agreeable circumstance, which sometimes it is, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, and I will not go out free, then the master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And that's what's being depicted in this picture of the master taking the awl in the slave's ear up against the door, and that's how they pierced ears back then. I mean, today we go to the store and you ping, all, all um, uh, whatever, sterile and stuff. But this is what they did. They went bam and put it right through. I remember when my uh, sisters got their ear pierced. I don't know what it was about my dad. My dad's an orthopedic surgeon and so deals with needles and stuff like that. And rather than going to the store like everyone else where it would have been painless, quick needle, he numbed it up with ice and then poked through their ears to some pain. Similar to this. They didn't have ice back then. It would have been some pain. But love for the master would have certainly overcome that because the, the slave would have voluntarily put it in there because the slave says, it's better for me to be under the, the nice rule of my master than to be out on my own because out on my own I won't live as well as I live here. This is better for me here than it is out there. And that's what Paul was saying when he says that he was a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's why a bond servant might be a good translation because it's got this picture that I'm, I'm bound as a servant to my master. He was saying, I love Christ Jesus. He is a good master. I've laid my life at his doorpost and I am his slave forever. And listen, what's true of Paul is true of every genuine believer of Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not. You're slave of Jesus. You be like, may be like that one slave that's always trying to run away. That master is trying to bring you back. But it says in Romans 6.22, You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a master. Every time we pray to God, Lord, we're praying that He is our master. And you are slaves. Is that how you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as a slave of God? Have you ever said, I love Christ Jesus. He is a good master. I've gone to the doorpost. 
He has pierced my ear. I am his slave forever. I know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I will go where he says to go. And I will do what he says to do because I am his slave. Well, that was Paul. In fact, even we see him going in the next phrase. He says, I'm a a slave of Christ Jesus. I am called to be an apostle. Now, an apostle is one who is, is sent. He's sent on a mission. And Paul was sent on a mission by the Lord Jesus Christ. I alluded to earlier, but when, when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in the, the blinding light, he then spoke to Paul through Ananias, who chased him down. He said, Ananias, tell him he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. This is what it means to be an apostle, is to go on a mission, is to go with a, with a message. And I have you know, even here, it notes that Paul was, Paul was called to be an apostle. I mean, that's a, a specific call, a specific appointment that Paul, you will be one whom I will send. Called is used twice more in this context, I do believe, with the same thrust. Uh, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Just as Paul was summoned out, pointed out by God to say, you are one, you're going to go out for me. So likewise, called of Jesus Christ, called to belong to Jesus Christ, exact same. God identifies us and he calls us, says you're going to belong to Jesus Christ and you are mine. And we'll see that in Romans, particularly in Romans chapter 9, which speaks of the sovereignty of God choosing and calling and electing us. Or look at verse 7. To those who are in Rome, who are loved by God, called to be saints. These are the ones who are loved by God. These are the ones that God has designated and called, just as Paul was called to be an apostle to send this message out to the nation. You say, what's the message? Well, glad you asked, because it comes in the next phrase. Chapter 1, verse 1. Called, okay, by the way, if you, you missed this, the little slave is saying, I love my master. David, that's what you need to write there. I love my master. But here we see the next phrase about what the message is set apart for the gospel of God. That that was his message, the gospel, which it says in chapter 1, verse 15, that he was eager to preach this message. In fact, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. It's about the gospel. It starts chapters 1 through 3 about our sin. And and chapters 3, 4, and 5 speak about the wonders of our salvation, how God saves us and how he redeems us and reconciles us and adopts us. And chapters 6 and 7 then deal with how he changes us to to walk in sanctification. And and chapter 8 is all about the security of those in Christ Jesus. As chapter 8 ends, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, because God's the one who loves us, God's the one who calls us, God's the one who points us, and there's nothing that's going to take us from his hand. The word gospel here is how we... Translated the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion, which sounds a bit like the word evangelical because that comes from the same thing. It's just transliterated, evangelion. It means good news. You, you, or ev means good. Like if you say like a funeral, you have a eulogy. E-U, L-O-G, logy, word, you, good. It's a good word that people say at funerals that they don't say when people are alive. And angelos, angelion, 
It's like an angel. It means a, one who is sent, one who has a, a message to go. And so the euangelion is, is good news. Paul was set apart by God. And here again you see the sovereign, sovereign work of God in Paul's life that says that he was set apart. Paul was distinct, distinctly set apart by God for this gospel. And in this case, in Romans, he wants to bring that gospel to Spain because he's kind of out of the regions. He's spoken all of the gospel all around the world. Jerusalem to Illyricum, and now he wants to go beyond Illyricum and wants to go to, to Spain. It, it reminds me of Florence Young. Here she is, born in 1856 to English parents. She uh, came to faith in Christ and rubbed shoulders with men like um, um, George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. And in fact, even spent some time in China as a missionary with Hudson Taylor. And um, he just, she's caught their missionary zeal and, and went there. But with the Boxer Rebellion, she was kicked out of there. And, uh, but she had a heart for the natives of the Solomon Islands. And she established a mission called the South Seas Evangelical Mission. And in those days, in order to minister to islands, you didn't just fly your, your little plane from island to island. Uh, nor did you swim. Kids, what would you do if you wanted to go from island to island those days? Eva, what would you do? Help me. You'd sail, right? You'd, you'd get a boat. And so what uh, Florence Young did was she bought a boat. And she named it the Evangel. She named it the Gospel. As it would, would go forth. And this was a yacht that, that she purchased in 1904 and used until her death. In uh, 1940, I think, was her death. And she would use that. As, as the means by which she would travel from island to island. Steve Nichols shares how she would pull into an island and have prayer meetings and Bible studies. She identified some local leadership on the island. She would train them and then she would step aside, let them pastor a church. Then she would get back on the yacht and she'd head off to another island. And Florence Young had a heart and a will to bring the gospel to the South Seas. Even naming her boat, the gospel, the evangel, the good news. And, and here's, here's the wonderful thing, right? The, the evangel is the message that Paul had, and the evangel is the same message that we have. In fact, that's the wonderful thing about Romans. He wants to make sure that, that his gospel is our gospel because it is the gospel. The world is filled with bad news. You just need to pick up your paper, turn on your TV, and you see shootings, you see hatred, you see disunity, you see wars, you see death, sin, conflict, hardship, poverty, exploitation. Heard about exploitation the other night and um, at uh, First Love um, kind of celebration. That's why Joel and Tara were in and just... Um, it's a guy's working among the Filipinos, um, abused young girls. Just like people are inventing sin with the internet. And, and the hurt in these girls, just incredible. But he's ministering to them and seeking to help them. And um, just, that's bad news. And in a world of bad news, you know what we have? What do we have? We have good news. Who, who likes to share good news? I like to share good news. Um, Hannah came home yesterday with a little medal around her neck. 
he had a volleyball tournament, and the little medal said, um, I forget what it said, all tournament team, on the back said all tournament team. Of the 12 teams, there were 12 girls there, and she made the all-tournament team. And they took a picture. I hope to get it to you. I'll send it. I'll, I'll brag about my daughter in the week of the word. But, but she said that all the girls were, girl, 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 Hannah. Girl, 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 girl. And that was good news. And so what did I do when I received good news about Hannah just being blessed at this tournament? I pulled out my phone, and I started texting my family. The kids in California, our whole family, Lena, and just kind of had pictures there and, and, and what it was. I had a picture of Hannah with her medal and had a picture of the medal up close. When you have good news, you like to share it. Right? If something happens good at work, man, what are you going to do when you come home? You share that good news. Right? When you get that raise or when you land that job or, ladies, some advancement with your kids. I mean, it's funny the things we rejoice in with, as parents, right? Little things. I didn't help Sarah go to the bathroom today. Yes! woo It's good news! I mean, it's good news in the contrast. Of, so are you eager to share that good? We got good news. Are, we, are, we, are you eager to share that? As Paul was eager to share the gospel. How about this? Do you have an evangel? Like, like do you have a... Maybe, maybe you don't need a boat. But I, w- I was thinking this week about my evangel was Joel. As we took Joel around, uh, he just became a means by which I could share something of God. And, and on at least three different occasions, we were at, at some place. Uh, I remember I took him to the mall. Okay, so, Whoa, to the mall. And uh, we, we went in in Sears. And right where we went in with Sears, they have all these mattresses. And he said, oh, Steve Dye, they... Uh, they sell the mattress and the pad and everything all, all in one together? I said, yes, they don't do that. You buy the mattress one place and then you buy your wood frame another place. And uh, so he's amazing that. And then there was a guy who was kind of there and kind of the worker was kind of looking. And I just, I, I tried to use my evangel to talk with him about, you know, my friend Joel here, he's from India and he's never seen these things. And so we're kind of showing him around. It's kind of fun. And, and uh, yeah, Joel is leading a, a children's home and he, he helps pastor this church over there, just preaching about Jesus to these kids and, and bring them to faith in Christ. And the guy was like, whatever. But I, I had Joel as an opportunity to bring that up, and, and I brought him up on, on several other occasions about people like, hey, this is first time in the States. He's experiencing this for the first time and just trying to promote some spiritual conversation. But unlike India, where they know they have a need, people in America don't even know they had a need. And it just... Oh, God, whatever. Didn't even affect them. But maybe for you, there's some evangel that you have. Maybe some kind of tool. Maybe some kind of person. Maybe some kind of opportunity to, uh, to use to get to other people. To speak with them. Just encourage you to, to think through what, what you might have. Because um, Florence Young had a boat. And we need something to preach the gospel too well you say where's this message comes from it comes from well here one more thing i forgot this these are the kind of people she was reaching towards people like that of the south seas just had a heart for those people but you know what your neighbors may not look like this with sticks through their nose but your neighbors are just as lost 
And if you can't go to your neighbors, no sense going around the world. Because the world is coming to us. And you can just walk across the fence. So what's the message? The message comes from the scriptures. There's our, our source, and I need, to, I need to get going here. But this is our second point. We've seen Paul in the first point. We've seen the scriptures in the second point. This is the gospel, right, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel of God is essentially the fulfillment of a promise. It's a promise that began back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. That very day they sinned, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There it is. That, that uh, the serpent would give a flesh wound, but the promised one would give a death wound. And from that day in the garden, the promise remained that someday there would be someone who would crush Satan. In fact, even Paul refers to that in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, or 16, verse 20, I think. Right? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's an allusion back to that first gospel. That first thing that was mentioned, but the, the scripture, the, as the scripture unfolded, right? As the time, it, nation of Israel goes out, we see Abraham. The promise of the seed of Abraham. Not seeds is referring to money, but one seed that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ro, Genesis 12, 3. The, the scriptures promise a, a prophet like Moses and a, and a king like David. And a priest like Melchizedek. And all the Old Testament scriptures point relentlessly to, to one day when this one would come and destroy the works of the devil. He's often called the Messiah or the Anointed One. And, and the saints of the Old Testament joined even the prophets who looked at their own scriptures and inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow like like. Uh, Phil read for us in Isaiah 53, the sufferings of Christ. But, but the glories, as you're going to see his offspring, as he prolongs his days, he's going to rejoice over his offspring, he's going to rejoice over those who believe, and yet he's going to suffer first, and then comes the glory later. And we know the story. We know that Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that came and conquered sin and death. Paul wrote in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Right When the right time came, the promise was fulfilled. God has kept His promises. But we often don't keep ours. And the message Paul preached didn't come from his own thought. It was rooted in the Scriptures. Promised beforehand. Fulfilled in Paul's day. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he was buried. And then he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4. That, that he, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. The scriptures foretold and prophesied about Christ coming. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are about. They speak about Jesus. My third point this morning. Concerning his son. Verse 3. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was declared to be... The Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. 
by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a story of Jesus. He's the son. He's the son of God. He's fully divine. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. That's why John said the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 1 and 14. But Jesus wasn't just some theophany, some some illusion or some kind of appearance, a ghost-like appearance of God or some kind of like God is distant. No, Jesus became a man. Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully human. Descended of David. That's what verse 3 says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now that speaks first of all of his humanity, but it also speaks of his earthly line that he came from the line of David. Remember when the Magi came from the east, they said, where is the Messiah to be born? Well, the Messiah, of course, is the son of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem because they all knew that he was the son of David. And you can trace in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3, the the genealogies of Jesus leading right down to show that he was very man. He didn't just poof appear on the scene. No, he came the way that all of us came through the womb of a woman. And he grew like all of us grew. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew up like any other little boy grew up. He grew up to be a man. He grew in his wisdom. He grew in his stature. He grew in his favor with, with God, with men, with people. As he became better educated, understanding more how it is that Jesus, the God-man, knew everything. And yet, I don't know, it's all wrapped up in the mystery. But that's what it is. How he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant. Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. And he did no ordinary thing. He lived a perfect life and died a perfect death for our sins. As a result, God raised him from the dead. And in doing so, God made a declaration about Jesus that he was indeed the Son of God. Verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. It was the the resurrection of the dead, the raising up from the dead in which God declared him to be the Son of God with power. Probably is a reference to Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, today I've begotten you. You've come and you've ruled and you reign on high and there you are. I'm going to seat you at my right hand. I'm going to wait for your enemies who made a footstool for your feet. Do you remember the scene at the end of the Gospel of Mark? When Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, the soldiers mocked him with a purple robe. They, they knelt down and hailed the king of the Jews. They spat on him and they beat him on the head. They placed a crown of thorns on him and then was on a cross. They, they derided him. Oh, you who destroyed the temple in three days, raise it up again. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And the chief priests and the scribes, they wagged their heads and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself. Let the Christ, yeah, right. Let the anointed one. They were fully right. But they're mocking him. Let the king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. But Jesus was silent to it all. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.21 And while upon that cross, Jesus seemed to be more concerned about others than himself. Mary, behold John. John, behold your mother. John, take care of my mom. Or the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, he had some concern for himself. He, he thirsted. 
at that moment when God poured out his wrath for our sins upon his body, he said, God, why have you forsaken me? Yet still, the way he died was very unique. And taking it all in, there was a man who'd probably seen it all, witnessed the entire crucifixion. In fact, he may have been one beating there, or maybe the centurion was the, the one who has head over everything. We don't know. But we know that he was there when, he, he, when Jesus breathed his last breath because Mark fifteen thirty nine says, when he saw how Jesus breathed his last breath, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now that was a human proclamation, kind of like the exclamation point on the Gospel of Mark. But three days later, When Jesus rose again, God made that same declaration. This time, not looking up from the ground upon a man who died, but rather from heaven, the declaration came, surely this man was the Son of God. The resurrection was the the proof that everything he said was true. When he raised from the dead, he showed himself to the apostles. He showed himself to Peter and And John, and even Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 15, and last of all, he appeared to me, the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because he was a persecutor of the church. He appeared to him saying, this Jesus is alive. Death could not hold him. See, because a pure life couldn't remain in the tomb. And I think that's the issue here, but he was raised, declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the the holiness, the Holy Spirit, just right there. His pure life couldn't remain in the the grave. And so he's resurrected. And then in verses 5 through 7, we pick up on the nations, really pick up on our mission. Look at verses 5 through 7. And through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that through Jesus, Paul says, we've received grace and apostleship. We've already talked about apostleship. This is the Jesus sending out his apostles to, to preach his message. But here, we have received grace. And the grace that Paul received is similar to the grace that we receive. In our prayer meeting this morning, the fighter verse that we're memorizing just to help us in the fight of sanctification this week is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, remember, had a thorn in his flesh and he wanted to get rid of it and he prayed to God three times. God could have gotten rid of it. But in his sovereignty, he chose not to. But he said, what? My grace is sufficient for you. So think about what is grace. Grace is, is a spiritual power that God gives to us somehow to overcome and accomplish what he has called us to do. Sometimes we use grace like mercy. Um, I know I often use it that way. Oh, give grace to people, meaning giving, giving mercy to people. Okay? I mean, you're not going to press. But grace is like an, an, an energetic thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul bragged about how, how he labored more than all the apostles. So you name them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishers of Capernaum, Thomas, St. Matthew 2, Philip, Bartholomew, James, Thaddeus, Simon. All of them. I labored more than all of them. And then he was quick to say, what? Not I, but 
But, remember, the grace of God within me. So it was God's grace that was empowering him to minister. And that's what grace is. And so this, this grace and apostleship that he has received is the, the, the power to go out, or the, the mission to go out, but also the power to accomplish that mission. So even as you think about, boy, what about, what I think about, or eager to preach the gospel, am I eager? I just say, are you eager to pray? Pray for God's grace to give opportunities to be able to speak. I have found that whenever I put my head and my heart to praying specifically, God, give me evangelistic opportunities I might tell others of Jesus. He invariably provides opportunities, and it's, God convicts my heart, and I say, okay, I need to walk through this to mention something about Christ. Now, it could be that those opportunities are always there, but my heart's not sensitive to it, but it very well could be that He makes new opportunities for me. And I just encourage you, as we think about preaching the gospel, we think about Paul's er, eager to preach the gospel, I'm calling you to be eager to preach the gospel, I am trying to be eager to preach the gospel to others, that we need God's grace to do that. Let's pray for for God's grace. But what's the mission here? God has given us this grace. He's given us this this sending from us. He's given us the power to do it, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the Gentiles. That's what He's aiming for. He's aiming for the obedience of faith. Okay, and you've got to be careful here. It's not not obedience which gains faith. It's, It's obedience that leads from faith. It's the obedience which stirs from faith. In fact, that's why Romans chapter 12 is part of Romans. Because it speaks of our, of our service. So it's, it's faith that walks in obedience. Remember 1 John, that is the premise, the argument of 1 John. 1 John 1, if we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, not in obedience, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Right, First uh, John chapter two. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Because see, it's the obedience of faith, right? That faith without works is dead. When you profess a faith, it will create the obedience. And Paul, in the gospel, isn't just merely looking for people to assent that they believe. He's looking for people to be transformed by genuine faith, which will transform itself in a, a life of obedience. And that was the mission. That was the mission of Paul. It's the mission that Jesus gave us. Go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey, teaching them to observe, teaching them to follow after we're disciples, we're followers of Jesus who consider ourselves, as Paul said, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. Well, it's a it's a good point here, I think, even in transition to the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, here's the gospel, right? That Christ Jesus, the God-man, came, he bore himself upon the cross. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And he's the one that we look to for forgiveness of sins. And he's the one that we press out to other people. And we can celebrate, which remember his death, by the bread and by the cup. We can turn over to 1 Corinthians 11 if you'd like. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 would be a good place to turn this is where Paul, again, reminds the brothers of the gospel I preached. The gospel that you received in which you stand. 
in which you're being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you. In other words, if you're continuing in the obedience to the faith, you'll be saved. It's the one who endures until the end who will be saved unless you believed in vain, unless you, your belief was just a vain belief. But here's the gospel. I already quoted this, but I'll do it again. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But catch that point, that Christ died for our sins. And that's the best news that we can have. We have sins. And we get through Romans 1 through 3. I hope that we all feel the depth of our depravity and know how sinful we are. But know also that Christ is the one who died for our sins. And that's what we celebrate is to remember and reflect upon what Christ has done. But even as the aim is the obedience of faith, really the, the question comes, right? Are you a genuine disciple? Are you a genuine believer? Do you have obedience to the faith? Are you walking with Him? And if you are, and if you have got that mark in your ear, it says, I'm a slave of God. You say, I followed up and I'm in. Oh, I'm not in all the time. Even, even Paul says, wretched man that I am, even in a believing state, says, oh, I'm so sinful. But he's looking back to Christ. He's looking back in him. There's no condemnation. If that's where you're looking, this supper is for you. But if, you know, if, you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you've not taken that all to your, to your ear, just let the elements pass you by. Or if there's some sin you're harboring in your heart, just let the elements pass you by. Because we want to take, eat of the bread and cup in a, in a worthy manner. Because he who doesn't eat, as Paul says, brings judgment upon himself. And maybe today is a day where you're going to cry out to God and say, God, I need you. And I want Christ. And I want the blessing of forgiveness. And cry out right to God, right where you are. And he'll save your soul. He saved Paul. He, he can save you. So you might know the joy of living with him. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us even now to, to glory in the gospel. So much so, Lord, that we would indeed be eager to, to believe it and eager to preach it. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning, just, just taking simple bread and taking the cup, God, may you meet with us and remind us again, remind us afresh of the glories of Jesus crucified upon the cross for our sins. That we might sing to you how thankful we are that you are the Messiah. That you are the one who came to save. And the bread represents your body and the the juice represents your blood. As we taste, God, just may the different sensations of our worship this morning, God, bring us closer to you as we worship and adore you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.